Welcome to a special edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. Recently, our co-host Don Mills was inducted into the Junior Achievement Nova Scotia Business Hall of Fame. And so I thought that it would be great this week to have a conversation with Don about his business career and have him provide observations and thoughts around his career and what learnings there could be for other entrepreneurs uh, and business people across the region. And also things like why he has put such a focus over his career on volunteerism uh, and getting involved in the community. I think you're going to love this conversation. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Don Mills of the Insights Podcast with Don Mills and David Campbell. Don is one of four inductees this year into the Nova Scotia Business Hall of Fame. It's an impressive honor as Don joins past inductees with names such as Oland, Sobey, Jodry, Bragg, Joyce, Crawford, and Risley. To be added to the Hall of Fame roster, inductees must have made an outstanding contribution and have been a role model for future entrepreneurs. The ceremony is on November 3rd, so I thought we could flip the chairs and put Don on the hot seat to talk about his career and leadership and why he is so dang passionate as an advocate for a prosperous Atlantic Canada. Don, welcome to the Insights Podcast. (laughs) Feels weird being on this side of the uh, microphone, David, but uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. (laughs) So Don, right off the bat here, are you in relation to the Mills brothers that actually are already in the Business Hall of Fame in Nova Scotia, Willett and Hugh? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, the Mills family that I'm part of actually originated in Quebec and um, and uh, migrated, I guess, <laughs> is the right word, to Nova Scotia. So uh, I don't think that we're related. No. So they already named a parkway after you in Toronto, the <laughs> Don Mills Parkway. How does being inducted into the Nova Scotia Business Hall of Fame compare to that honor? <laughs> well, first of all, like I spent most of my life, every time I, I, I called Toronto, they would think I was the uh, branch office of their head office or whatever. And I, I, I ended up starting to say, no, I'm the person, not the place, because it happened to me so often over the years. So <laughs> that's just a little story about my name. It's a great honor, honestly. Uh, you know, when I when I was uh, first told about it, I, you know, I, I didn't feel I was as deserving as some of the people that are in the hall of fame, honestly, I mean, the names that you mentioned that, you know, they're all so impressive and they've done so much. I, you know, I don't really see myself in the same way as those people. So, you know, I'm certainly honored to be uh, recognized in that regard and uh, humbled by the company that I'm keeping, honestly. So we're going to talk about your business career, Don, and I think the listeners are going to realize why you have been inducted after we get through that part of the conversation. But I want to start way back at the beginning. Hmm. Uh, I want to, I want the listeners to know where and when you were born, what was the early Don Mills like, and how did you end up at Halifax? Were you an athlete, a nerd, a ladies' man? So tell us a little <laughs> bit about the young young Don Mills. Well, certainly never a ladies' man, that's, that's to be sure. <laughs> Um, well, I was born and uh, brought up in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Uh, my dad was uh, uh, from the eastern townships. He was from Richmond, Quebec. And uh, he met my mother, who was a Nova Scotian, uh, during the war in Halifax. And they ended up getting married and uh, ended up in Sherbrooke uh, in the early years. And in fact, I have six brothers and sisters, and they, they were all born in Sherbrooke. So, you know, um, I... Um, I went through high school in Sherbrooke, and I ended up going to Bishop's University 
um, uh, which is next door in Lennoxville. Um, so, but in my very first year, my, my parents had an opportunity to move and uh, they had choices. My dad was uh, with a company called Carborundum, which was a kind of a, you know, a manufacturer of uh, grinding wheels and, and, and industrial sanding uh, belts and that sort of thing. So uh, because of my mother's, uh, you know, relationship to uh, Nova Scotia, and also this was during the FLQ days, you might recall, uh, it was not a bad idea to, you know, leave Quebec. And they decided they ended up in Truro, but they kind of left me behind Dakota University. <laughs> I found them though. I, I did find them. And, um, uh, it was, uh, it was a really good, uh, you know, it was a very good upbringing for me in, in Quebec. And I, I must say that it really informed my, my opinions in a very significant way about, uh, Quebec and the challenges of being a Quebecer, uh, an Anglophone Quebecer in particular. And I grew up very sympathetic, honestly, very sympathetic to Francophones because at that time the Francophones were really being dominated by a very minority, uh, Anglophone group, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, like I really understood and, and sympathized with their with their position, frankly. And uh, I've been defending Quebec Quebecers, French Quebecers, ever since. Honestly, it's just it's just one of those things that uh, you know, unless you've lived there and you you don't really understand that you know, if you're a Francophone, you're you're living in a sea of Anglophones. It, it, like you know, it, you're under a lot of uh, a lot of pressure. And, you know, I give them credit for fighting to protect their language and their traditions, and I completely support that mandate. And, and here's a, here's a, a sort of a funny sort of side effect of this. You know, I grew up in a, in a, in a city that was 85% French, at least. I actually didn't have to speak French growing up because, you know, the culture was such that people were served in English. And, you know, that, uh, that uh, entitlement was really, uh, you know, quite... Uh, you know, uh, significant. And like, I regret that, like, I know some French, I can understand some French, but I regret that I'm not bilingual. And and that, that says everything about the challenge of Francophones had at that time. Right. And, um, but I, I committed that my kids would be bilingual and I put my kids in French immersion. Um, and they went through that from, you know, primary all the way up to grade 12, whatever. And now their kids are in, in French immersion. So I think that commitment to bilingualism was really ingrained in me at an early stage. I think I don't understand, uh, you know, this is an aside, but this is my opinion. I don't understand why Canadians just don't accept like Europeans that having a second language should be a big benefit and we should all strive for it. It's just an amazing sort of skill to have. And, you know, <laughs> so, you know, my, my growing up in Quebec was really one of my really early influences is about attitudes about uh, bilingualism and, and, and the French uh, challenge and that sort of thing. Did uh, you have any, <clears throat> did you have any inkling in the early days that you wanted to own start your own business? Did you have any influences, uh, aunt, uncle, anybody that, any, no, anybody none. that sort of made you impressed by business ownership? No, I, I mean, I, I remember working when I was, I think, 15 or 16 for a guy who owned a, an auto parts, uh, uh, you know, uh, store. And I, I admired him uh, because, uh, you know, he was, you know, he's uh, he did pretty well. So that was maybe my first exposure to somebody who owned a business. And, uh, you know, I really respected him. But I really didn't have many other influences 
you know, so when my when my when I finished my my university at Bishops, and by the way, I want to mention this because I really think that Bishops was also another big influence in my life. It's a you know, it's a liberal arts um, uh, university like Mount A and uh, X and uh, Acadia. They're all very similar, and 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 that uh, sort of liberal arts education was a broadening of my thinking. Like I I came through through that experience, and you know what. I had a bigger I had a bigger point of view about the world around me, and, I, and that was really important, uh, honestly, to my business later on because I I could take a slightly different perspective, perhaps, than others. Because you know I end up having I, I had a bachelor's degree in business uh, with a marketing major, but I also took religions of the world, you know, psychology, um, American history, you know, like I came I came with a I came out of there with a broader perspective because of that. I'm, you know, that's probably why I'm such a fan of the liberal arts tradition in terms of uh, a base ed- education. I thought it was really important. And then, <clears throat> you know, when I graduated, of course, uh, you know, I, I loved Nova Scotia. I spent I spent time in Nova Scotia when I was a kid. My grandparents uh, uh, lived in a very small um, fishing village uh, called Whitehead near Canso. You know, and I'd go down there for weeks and like I just love the ocean. And so I, I knew when I graduated, I was going to be in the ocean. And uh, I came to Nova Scotia and uh, I ended up in Halifax. <laughs> the first night in Halifax, um, I stayed at the YMCA on South Park Street. I was looking for a job and I did find a job. And um, but, you know, life is a series of circles, right? So years later. I became chair of the board of that same YMCA. You know, my my grandchildren went there for um, you know uh, childcare. Like you know, it became kind of part of my life. I ended up raising money in the, for the new Y that's in in Halifax. Like the, you know, those those continuing circles of uh, connection that seem to follow you around sometimes was really evident for me. You know, yeah, we're going to come back on to your philanthropic work and your community involvement yeah. in a minute. But I wanted to ask you, what was that first job? You graduated bishops, yeah. you came to Halifax, you stayed at the Y. Where did you end up getting your first job? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm I'm part of the baby boom generation. Uh, there were a lot of us out there looking for jobs. Uh, people don't remember this, but it was actually very, very hard to find a job at that point. There were too few jobs and too many graduates. Uh, people. Don't don't remember that, but I certainly do. And but I I got a job with uh, with uh, um, a company called uh, Litton Industries, which owned a, a subdivision called Monroe uh, Business Machines, and it was a sales job. And uh, I have to tell you, I hated that job. Uh, like it was really hard. Uh, at the same time, I learned I, I learned some sales skills that I've used. Throughout my life, they were really, really important sales skills. But they, that job also motivated me to realize that if I wanted to really do something I wanted to do, I had to get more education. And it was the uh, the thing that led me to go back to uh, to Dalhousie and get a master's in business administration, again, with a marketing concentration. So it was a really important experience, not necessarily from the positive experience of the work itself, but the motivation it gave me... <laughs> <laughs> to find find a different path, and that that was very helpful for me. 
So then you went on to Dalhousie. You got your master's in business. Um, tell yeah. us about that uh, experience. Well, it was really uh, transformational in many ways. You know, uh, the one thing about uh, the MBA school, and I remember going back, like I had debt for my my uh, undergraduate degree. You know, my parents weren't very uh, well off, and I had to find a way to get myself through that. So I had fairly significant debt at that time. And I knew that it was a risk to go back. You know, I wasn't sure I could complete an MBA. I didn't have that much confidence in myself at the time. I was My goal was to get through Christmas. If I got through Christmas, I thought I could make it. And it was really hard work. It was as hard. I've never worked as hard up to that point in my life. It really taught me, it really taught me how to work hard. That's for sure. But also it gave me the opportunity during the first and second year you know, there was a student consulting company called Atlantic Business Consultants. I believe it's still going, believe it or not, you know, decades later. And uh, the f- uh, the first year students bought the company, literally paid for it. It wasn't a lot, obviously, but paid for it from uh, the second year students who, who had it for a year between the first and second years of the program. And it was that experience that really, I think, changed my life. Because first of all, you know, there were a group of five of us and we ran our own business. We had to go out and find the business. We had to do the business. And it was actually quite lucrative. It was it was very lucrative. And it was during that experience that I got exposed to marketing research. And this is this is a story I, I'm, I've been telling for a while. But one of the things that we did is we did the uh, we did some market research for Sport Nova Scotia, who are thinking about doing a lottery. And uh, <laughs> So we got the we we did the work and we basically said yeah there's a there's a market opportunity people would be interested in the lottery and so they did a lottery to help sport Nova Scotia that was the beginning of Atlantic Lottery that turned into Atlantic Lottery which turned into one of my biggest clients later on and in fact we had that we still have that client the company still has that client we've had that client for thirty years or something like that like again another circle of life right yeah. Yeah, impressive. Okay, so you did get exposure to entrepreneurship while you were at Dal. Uh, that's a good part of the story. But then you graduate from Dal, and what do you do right away? Well, I, I actually got hired by Dal, and uh, they had a they had a at that time they had uh, something called the Institute of Public Affairs, which did um, uh, municipal training and uh, they had a small unit called the Advanced Management Center that did uh, management training. And I got involved in that side of the business. And uh, it was also uh, really uh, uh, a good opportunity because we had a fair amount of freedom of what we did. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we we started to think outside the box in the Advanced Management Center. We start, started looking outside Atlantic Canada for business. And we started to... The, you know, to do programming that would attract business from outside the region. And then we also did uh, an annual training and development conference, which had, was which not available. We took it across the country. Like, you know, that was a really good experience because it, it, it demonstrated to me again that we could do we could do anything we wanted. You know, we didn't have to have be confined by borders. And, and by the way, I, I just want to mention this because I, I think it's important to mention it was during that period that I recognized that Atlantic Canadians had a certain lack of confidence about their ability to compete outside the region. That was kind of evident to me as somebody who came from outside. And I was surprised by it. I didn't understand it. And, and, and you know, when I worked at Dalhousie, uh, we were technically on the faculty, by the way. 
you know, we started doing these things outside the region and, and we were doing really well. And people looking, they were surprised that we were doing it. I, I wasn't surprised. You know, I, I thought, well, why, why not? Why, why couldn't we do this? So, well, you know, but that attitudinal barrier that seemed to be in place in those days was pretty strong. And I think it was one of the reasons that kind of held back uh, the prosperity for this region. I, I don't think that's there anymore, by the way. I'm, I'm really glad to say that we don't have that hesitancy to be able to compete with people in, in other parts of the country or the world. That's kind of gone away. But at that point, it was pretty evident that there was a barrier. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And in fact, most of my exposure to people that have moved to this region from Quebec is they do tend to have a higher level of confidence on average uh, than folks that maybe were born here. So that's an interesting uh, observation. So you, you, you were involved with this policy center for what, two or three years? Like you started your business, CRA, in 1978 when you were 28. So yeah. what's yeah. the little window there? How long did you work for Dell? Well, I worked there for actually uh, nearly a, a decade or so. Um, and But partway through that, my, uh, my original partner, Greg Trask, and I, you know, we we're ambitious guys. We decided that we would start operating a business on the side. We, okay. we set up a partnership uh, and we operated that kind of as a, you know, outside the daily stuff for a few years. And, and it, we started to get a little traction and we said, well, you know, well, why don't we start a company? We had a partnership. So we started a corporate research in, in, in 1978 and we operated kind of as a part-time operation. We did, we, you know, we hired our first employee, regular employee, not our wives. <laughs> and um, we started to get, you know, enough business to support a staff person. And then, then I decided to leave and do it full-time um, in, in the, uh, I think, the early 80s sometime. Uh, yeah. Greg decided that uh, he had some, um, you know, some personal uh, challenges. He decided he couldn't take the risk and he stayed behind. And it was at that time that his um, his share was uh, uh, bought out by Steve Parker, who became my partner for the next 20 years. So Greg was my partner for the first 10 years of the business. Great guy. He's gone now, but he like he was really an important person for me. He, he was way, way more risk tolerant than, than I was at that time. He taught me how to deal with risk, which was really important. And then, you know, um, uh, Steve Parker uh, 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 purchased his shares, and we basically formed the CCL group of companies, uh, which included uh, corporate research at that time, uh, corporate communications, and Sight and Sound was the other company in the group. So we made it a group, and that group uh, operated extremely successfully uh, for almost 20 years before you know the next change in direction happened for me. So we want to learn a little bit about those early days. How how was the mm. business capitalized? Did you bootstrap it or did you have any capital? Who were your first clients? I, I'd, I'd be interested to know if you actually worked the phones, like you, you talked about your wives. So who were your first clients? Tell us a little bit about those early days. Yeah, uh, the, the most important first client that we had was uh, Maritime Tell and Tell at that time. And, um, we developed a really, uh, this is interesting. We developed a relationship with somebody who was uh, doing this MBA as a, you know, mature, uh, student who had a job in the marketplace. And we, uh, met, uh, met this fellow and we developed a friendship and he gave us our first real opportunity 
And of course, uh, you know, Maritime Tell and Tell up to that point was was purchasing all of its research from outside the region, as everybody else was. There was really no, there's no real, you know, um, market here for market research companies. We were kind of the the first to kind of get established, I guess. And um, he gave us a, a big break, and we actually got a fairly steady uh, stream of business from him. He's very good to us. We did good work, by the way. I thought I thought we did really good work. And you know what? Uh, that company was our and its successors. We had that as as a client until the day I sold the company. Forty years. And you know, I think that that was the statement of of the quality of our work, obviously. But it's also the you know the statement that over that period of time there were many changes in personalities with that company right that this is the challenge of running a business over the long term that the relationships change and your ability to transition those relationships is really critical to the success of the company we were able to do that really well because we 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 were very close to our clients and um <clears throat> obviously we tried to deliver the highest standard uh, work that we could and i think the test of time proved that right so did you have an infusion of capital or did you just, just kind of, oh, yeah. you know, work No, out? no, we did it. We did it from the seat of our pants. Like, you know, we were working from our kitchen table, David. Like, you know, <clears throat> this is a time before computers. <laughs> that's, how, that's how long ago it was. I mean, I remember our first big purchase, you'll get a laugh out of this, was a Selectra IBM typewriter that could auto, you could correct mistakes in your reports. <laughs> that, that was the big that was the big technology purchase that we did mm-hmm. we we were we were aggressive on that though we i mean we i remember the first two uh we bought two not one but two compact portable computers uh, and they had no memory to speak of like they were they had no power whatsoever mm-hmm. but we were the first on the block to have computers and start to computerize our business it's a laugh when you think about it. I mean, so, you know, it's a long time ago, but, you know, we were very good at keeping up with technology um, all the way through the history of the company. In fact, one of the important things I think about, you know, we went through a time, by the way, where, you know, uh, most of the telephone, uh, the, the telephones were rotary dial. And then we got into push button dial, Ooh, really you know, sophisticated. You know, we went from that period to, you know, digital. <laughs> and everything in between, you know. So that transition, you have to be able to anticipate and keep pace with, not necessarily lead, but you know, be very close behind. And you know, we were doing a lot of technology in the end because um, we understood the value of technology. So it's the it's a market research business for those who mm-hmm. don't know, and you are basically calling up. Uh, sample groups of individuals for clients mm. and getting feedback on a wide variety of issues. Everybody, I think, that knows CRA knows you kept an eye on business confidence, consumer confidence. You were you you did a yeah. I think a quarterly one for years. So yeah. Uh, yeah, go yeah. Ahead. yeah, no, I think you know one of the things that we established that was really, really important in the early days and it happened around I think uh about 10 years in, we we started the uh uh, Atlantic um, quarterly and uh, we tracked opinion across Atlantic Canada with large samples every quarter. Uh, it's still going, by the way, it's, uh, it's 35 years of tracking. 
And literally over that period of time, we probably talked to most households in the land of Canada. And it gave us a big edge over any of our competition because we knew what was going on. Every three months, we had an update on consumer confidence, on, on government performance, on, 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 on voting intentions, on habits and, and opinions and attitudes of the land of Canada. We, there was no one, and even to this day, the company, there's no one that can compare with our knowledge of the region. And that was a big asset in dealing with our clients. So not only did we do a project, we, we had all this background information that we could have put it in context. That was, you know, that was so valuable. And, uh, you know, that gave us a big edge in, in the market in this region. And um, it was really important to the success of the company. It continues to be uh, really important. But, of course, what happened over, over a period of time, uh, you know, uh, we, you know, we developed another business because of the work that we were doing. You know, we were doing so many outbound calls that we set up a separate company. Originally, it was called Corporatel, and um, it, it it was re- later rebranded uh, Blue Ocean. Uh, but that company um, uh, became even more successful than the research company. In the end, when I sold my interest, which was around 2008, I think, you know, I was running that company as well as the research company. We had 600 employees. You know, we're doing, you know, $20 million a year in revenue. And um, that company's still going, by the way. And uh, and all those all those jobs are still in place. I'm very proud of that fact. Um, and and so, you know, uh, it, it, it it's funny how things work out. We never started thinking about that as a business until we had enough volume doing outbound calls that we started to do inbound work as well. And uh, it turned out to be incredibly successful. So that gets me to my next question around your sort of at your zenith. So so you mm-hmm. had Blue Ocean was 20 million in sales, 600 employees. What about the other pieces of the business, the, the, the market research and so on? So what if you combined everything together, how big in terms of revenue and employment were, was the, were the were your businesses? Well, it's, you know, north of 25 million. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't have that many, uh, in the research company, but, uh, you know, we had, uh, I think at the peak, uh, we probably had around 35, but they were all really professional jobs, well-paid, you know, so we were well above 630, 40, something like that. So, you know, I'm really proud of that fact. I'm, I'm, I'm really particularly proud that they're all, those jobs are still there and, uh, you know, uh, people, you know, would, you know, turn the nose down at, at, at the work that we're doing at Blue Nose and because it was Blue, Blue, Blue Ocean because it seemed to be, you know, kind of low grade work. But w- what I always thought is that it was it was a great entry um, uh, work for young people because we train them in technology and we train them in customer, you know, service. And, and um, you know, we gave them a good uh, early sort of work experience that, you know, a lot of those people are still with the company, by the way, they moved up with the company and they, they're, they're in position of authority now, but, you know, it gave them a really good job experience, work experience they could take to their next job. And, you know, so, and, and we paid them competitively as well. We paid them well, and we had benefits. So we treated them as well as we could. Mm. So, you know, those jobs are, are, are important entry points for, for people just coming out of school. Yeah, absolutely, and, and interesting work because they're actually pinging and and, and polling and engaging with with uh, opinions and attitudes. So, just clear for the listeners, so Blue Ocean then did most of your 
surveying uh, yeah. questions. So they did yeah. that work for corporate research associates and the 30 yeah. or so staff in the business were more of the professionals, more of the analysts, folks like yes. that. Is that fair to say? The writers? That, that That's exactly right. And uh, and by the way, some of the clients that we had, we, uh, we ended up having an operation in uh, Vancouver. Uh, we won the contract to do the BC uh, reservation line for tourism. Uh, you know, and uh, I was very proud of that because, again, here we are, a little company in Nova Scotia competing against everybody in the world for that contract, and we won it. And uh, I think President we had a company uh, based in Halifax. And you had an operation in New Brunswick for a while. So where were your operations yeah. across the country? Well, for Blue Ocean, we had uh, we had three uh, centers. We had one in uh, St. John. We had one in Vancouver. And we had the head office in Halifax, of course. Um in St. John, our, our St. John operation was opened by Frank McKenna, by the way. <laughs> that was a, that was a, nice of him to help us out there. We had 100 people working in St. John at one time. Uh, that, uh, that center was uh, subsequently closed after I sold the business. But, you know, uh, it's also why we decided that it needed a name change. And the reason that we chose Blue Ocean, actually it was my idea to call it Blue Ocean, is that we had three centers on the ocean. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it made sense. But that, you know, that, that business, um, you know, we also did the, the Nova Scotia uh, reservation line too. So we had the experience to use that to, to win the um, BC business. And by the way, I, you know, I talk about this all the time. The, um, you know, the, the Nova Scotia reservation line was managed inside government <clears throat> and they decided to outsource it. Uh, we bid on the work. We bid and, 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 and worked with a UK company on the actually the software. We won that contract and that contract, which was not that big. It probably, I don't know, it probably had maybe 30, 40 jobs attached to it. Uh, ended up creating a, a call center of 600 because that was our first big inbound work. And that mm. created, you know, that outsourcing, I always used to say, you know, when you have some critical mass, you can grow that mass. And that, that the decision to outsource created a lot of other jobs that might, many people don't recognize as attached to that outsourcing. Yeah. And you remember when we talked to David Shipley and uh, his cybersecurity mm. firm, he said the same thing. He got the early business with government. He was able to leverage right. that into, into private business. So I think that there's a real message there, I think, for government in terms of its own business, its own supply chain, and how businesses can build up expertise and, and capacity and then be able to go yeah. export across the country. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's exactly right. And, you know, so, you know, I'm in favor of, of more of those opportunities because what the private sector can do that the public sector cannot do is look for opportunity and uh, and to see how to leverage, as you mentioned. So, you know, uh, you know, I've always complained, not complained, but kind of made it clear that one of the problems that we have in our region is that proportionally we have a smaller private sector relative to the public sector compared to anywhere else in Canada. In this, in this region, you know, uh, one in four people kind of work for the public sector. In Canada, it's one in five. So we're, you know, I always like to say we're playing a man short and, and we're expected to grow our economy at the same pace as the rest of the country. It's not possible. You know, we just don't have a big enough private sector to do that. And so we need to concentrate on, on rebalancing the uh, private and public sector in our region as one way to be more economically prosperous. Yeah. So you grow the private sector 
in a consistent way, faster than the public sector growth. And then over time, that'll be balanced more effectively. I think that's right. So just quickly, how did your CRA, your firm, uh, compare to other market research firms in Atlantic Canada and across the country? Was it a was it the biggest player in our region? How did it, has, how did it oh, compare yeah. size-wise? So we, you know, we belong to the industry association. Uh, you know, it's one of the things I did early because, you know, I always felt that there were, there were some competitors in the region, but I never, uh, I never wanted to compare myself to regional competitors. I, I thought it was too low a bar. No disrespect. But, you know, if you want to be among the best, you have to compare yourself to the best. And they were they were national players, and so we joined the national uh, association for our industry. In fact, I you know I, I was I became really actively involved at the national level as well, and I think made a contribution there uh, as well. But uh, it was uh, you know kind of through that process that they did uh, they did tracking of uh, revenues from organizations, and you know I think that um, I think that we were certainly in the top twenty from a revenue point of view, based on the information I had. And when you think about it, that's pretty good, right? There are hundreds and hundreds of companies. Absolutely. You know, you know a little company from Atlantic Canada being in the top 20, we were really proud of that. But one of the things that we also, um, also understood that it, to grow our business, we had to grow our business outside the region. There's only so much, there's only so much business in Atlantic Canada. And we were the dominant and continue to be the dominant player in this field that, you know, there's, you know, you, you get limited by the size of the market. And, uh, even now I think that, uh, at least a third or, or more of the revenue uh, from the company comes from outside the region. And of course that creates jobs in our region. Yes. But it's it, an it export gets, service. It, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, it gets back to my philosophy early on that we could compete with anybody. I think it's my, it's my old hockey <laughs> background. Like I was a People who played hockey against me will, will will tell you that I was relatively competitive on the ice, and um, you know, like that that sense of competition drove me uh, a lot in my in my in my career. <clears throat> so I thought we could we could compete anywhere, and you know, the winning of the contract with BC was an example of that. Like you know, in fact, you know, over the over the course of uh, my career, I tried to establish uh, uh, offices in, in Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver. Uh, it wasn't uh, that successful at that because it just didn't work out with the people that I, I got involved in. But like I, the dream was big, you know, that why couldn't we have a headquartered office, market research, national company out of this region? And 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 we do now. It's, you know, it's it, it it's. It's not the biggest, but it's it's very well respected and very well known. So owning a business, Don, is never smooth sailing. And I'm a huge fan of entrepreneurship, but I'm also a fan of people understanding that when you start a business, you know, many of them go bankrupt, many of them struggle, many of them go through the dark night of the soul. Uh, the old my, I had an old boss who used to say the owner gets paid last. Employees get paid first. Suppliers get paid first. And then the owner sort of third in line. Um, yeah. um, so can you give us a couple of examples of times over your 30, 40 year career here where times were tough and what you did to persevere? Yeah, the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest kind of sense of responsibility I had when we started to have employees that work with us is the ability to make sure we could pay them. <clears throat> 
you know, and the big and the hardest decision that we always had was when to add another employee. You know, did we have enough revenue to support that other employee? I never wanted to add an employee prematurely and didn't have to let them go. In fact, over the course of my 40 years of running the company, we never ended up in that situation. So we were making pretty good choices of when to add people. That's a trick, by the way. When you have a project business, you're in a project business, you know what that's like. It's hard to predict where the revenue is going to come from. So, you know, in the early years, I, you know, I was always super focused on revenue. And, 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 and making sure that there was a cash, you know, flow that could pay the payroll. And like, I, I, you know, I, I was always looking ahead, where was the revenue coming from? You know, did we have enough, you know, in a project business, you can work, you can kind of look ahead about 90 days, but beyond that, it's sketchy, you know? So I spent a lot of time in the early days. That was my big worry. Would I have enough revenue to pay the payroll? And then over time, I started to, build confidence that the business would be there, that I didn't have to worry where the business was coming from. It would come, you know, I didn't have to worry about that. So I started to relax about where the source of revenue would be. And that really made my life a lot better, I must say. But, you know, the times when when things were tough uh, were during the recessions, because one of the things that happens in in, in a business like market research is one of the first things that the budget gets cut on. You know, it's just, it's an easy thing to cut, you know, in good times, it's, you know, the money's there, in bad times, the money's not there as much. So there's a real downward pressure on, on your uh, top line as a result of that. But I had a different attitude than almost anybody in the industry. You know, I, I, I was prepared to take lower profits to keep my people. And I never had to lay people off because of the recession. I took I, I I took a hit on the profit line for sure, and I couldn't take I couldn't pay bonuses the way I normally paid bonuses. But I protected the people because I knew that coming out of the recession, I would be in better shape than my competitors who would probably shed employees to keep their costs you know in, in line or whatever. And that strategy worked out for me every time. Canada, the company grew stronger out of every recession. Our our competition grew weaker, and and you know it really made us like by far, you know, the biggest in the region for sure because of that strategy. So, but you know, those were like the financial pressures are something that you know it's not for everybody. <laughs> it's really not for everybody. And, and, it, and it, you know, it does put a lot of pressure on you for sure. So let's turn to your involvement in the community, Don. You were cited for that in your nomination for the Hall of Fame. You've been involved in multiple community leadership roles while mm-hmm. running the business and after, after you retire, but certainly while running your business, including at the Halifax Chamber of Commerce, the partnership, the IWK Foundation, and so on. I guess the first question is why not put all your time into the business? Why carve off, you know, those many, many hours and days for these other organizations? A lot of business owners are, you know, are head down, you know, 60, 70 hours a week on the business. Why did you feel compelled to undertake these volunteer uh, community roles? Well, I really credit that to my parents, uh, David. I mean, there are three things that I really uh, took from my parents. One, hard work was important. Uh, family was important and community was important. My, both my parents were volunteers. Uh, my mother was a volunteer in the Catholic Women's League for 40 years or something like that. 
And, you know, I recognize the value of the giving back to the community. And, you know, I, I came through a process of, of doing, you know, so much voluntary work over the year that I, I years, I, I really think that you can't be part of a community and not try to make it better. You're not really a community member. You're, you're a freeloader. And like, you know, I, I encourage my kids to get involved and, and I encourage our employees to get involved and, and, and making a difference. It doesn't have to be big, but, you know, if everybody does a little bit, things improve and the community gets better. And, and so that's been a driving force. Uh, there's no doubt that I have spent a, an enormous amount of time on volunteer work. I, like, I don't, even know, I don't even know the numbers, but it, it would be scary. And like there were times when I was four, on four or five different voluntary boards at the same time. Uh, I just, I just really liked it so much. And the other thing, by the way, it it was my form of education. I always tried to pick boards where I didn't know much about the the boards, and 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 so I got an education in sectors that I you know whether it's the healthcare sector or airports or you know universities or whatever. Like I came out of those uh, you know experiences with a really in-depth insider look. And that actually helped me in my business because, you know, I, I was, you know, more, more informed about things than most other people. So that the educational component was, was not insignificant for me personally. But the other thing that I also wanted to mention is that, you know, I've been lucky enough to be in, in, in so many, uh, you know, good uh, community organizations and, and that have made such a difference. You know, look at the airport authority as an example. You know, I was on the, uh, the chamber of commerce that, you know, uh, kickstarted that process to get an authority in place. I ended up on the founding board. You know, that airport has been an enormous economic uh, driver for the region. Uh, you know, I'm, one of the things I'm really proud of, we got, tra- you know, we got uh, transporter um, uh, clearance in Halifax, which was a very, very hard, long, difficult process, was really important to this region. You know, I was on the arthritis board when we, I was a chair of the board when we, uh, you know, established the arthritis center where we combined all the services for our, people suffering from arthritis in one location. And we ended, we, had, we put a lot of money in it from the arthritis society to make that happen. You know, to me, those, making those kind of differences are, you know, they're in the long-term um you know, term really good for the community. And, and, you know, it kind of makes you feel that you're making a difference. And so I love my business. I, I, it was passionate for me, but having the, the other side of the community side just gave me a much fuller life experience. And, And like, I got as much satisfaction and still do, frankly, from the community work that I've done and still do than I did for my professional life. It, the, the combination, you know, was really spectacular for me personally. And it, I think it made me a more rounded, uh, better business person as a result. And it, I hope, I'd like to think it made me a better person as well. So I would, anybody listening, like if you want to think about what you're, what you're contributing to your community, please do so. You, I, I promise you, you'll never get, um, you'll get more than you put in, a hundred percent. And it doesn't matter how much you put in; you'll get a lot more out, and it'll, you'll make you'll be a better person as a result of that. That's a good message, Don. We're seeing volunteer rates actually slipping 
in this part of the country in the last uh, few years. So it's uh, I think it's a good time to sort of revisit that. And maybe you and I can do a future insights podcast on the subject because I think it's very fascinating just you describing it and how it helped you in other areas of your life and your business and so on. But yeah, I could, just I, wanted, could I just, could I just mention one other thing? And that's one of the, one of the things that I've noticed, at least in our community is that, you know, I'm of a generation where there was a lot of people like me volunteering. Uh, and one of the struggles that I see right now is getting the next generation involved. And, you know, I don't know. I don't understand the reason for that. Uh, it's you know maybe it's just the lifestyle has changed or something like that. But I I I, I do think that young people listening, you know, uh, you really need to consider uh, what you're doing uh, from a volunteer point of view um, to help out make the community better. Hundred percent. They say that young people are less inter- interested in institutions and organizations, but you're absolutely right. These institutions, flaws and all, are what move communities forward. And they need yep. very strong private sector leadership. So I, I agree with that 110. Uh, percent yep. Don, I've always thought that owning a market research firm must be fun, or must have been fun. You must know more about Atlantic Canadians through that quarterly survey and all the other work that you've done than just about anybody else. So the big question <laughs> for you is: after four decades of polling and probing the minds of Atlantic Canadians, if you had to sum things up, how would you describe us as a people? The good, the bad the ugly, whatever, wherever you want to go with this question. But how would you describe Atlantic Canadians? If there's, there's probably nobody else in the region that knows our minds better than you do. So tell us about who we are. Well, you know, this is a topic I could spend a lot of time on. But I, one of the things that I would mention is that uh, that was clear to me early on is that the island provinces of Newfoundland and, and uh, PEI were different from New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in a couple of fundamental ways very insular uh, thinking and not as open to um, uh, people from uh, elsewhere in the region for, to, to do business. I, we, you know, we always had a saying that if you wanted to do business in, in Newfoundland, you had to have Newfoundland blood. Uh, and, and, and to a lesser extent, that was true in PEI. I don't think it is as, as, as it was then, but that was pretty evident. And, you know, their attitudes were very, inward looking compared to New Brunswick and, and, and Nova Scotia. That is moderated over time, for sure. Um, the other thing I guess that, uh, that I think is really uh, interesting about uh, the region, especially the Maritimes, is that there's no other place in Canada where we're as close uh, in many ways. Uh, there's a lot of affinity and relationships between the Four provinces, particularly the Maritimes, where it's uh, contiguous and not separated by an ocean. But you know that is that is an opportunity I think that is not well recognized in terms of getting things done. You know, I, you know I noticed that uh, the premier of New Brunswick uh, recently is talking about uh, doing some things on on jointly on healthcare as an example. Well, yeah, that could happen here. That could probably not happen anywhere else in the country because of the closeness of our relationships that we have in this region. So there are some uh, uh, positives here that, uh, that I don't think we're taking advantage of as much uh, as we should. We see this in our podcast, don't we? That the, that doesn't matter which province we're talking to, they have other deep relationships with similar organizations in the other Atlantic regions. And there's a lot of cooperation and collaboration going on. That's to the benefit of the whole region. And if we can stop thinking about this provincial, you know, 
you know, competitiveness that is unnecessary in our region, we can we can help each other grow and be more prosperous. So, you know, those are some of the things that I would make note of. So you've also been asking our opinion on politicians for many, many, many years. So mm. I wanted to ask you while I got you here, how, what, who do you think that over the over the many leaders that you've you've polled and talked about and looked at over the years, who do you think the best political re- leaders have been in Atlantic Canada? Well, I, I wrote a column about this not that long ago, <clears throat> so I think my opinions may be generally known. But one of the things that I would mention is that I I'm probably the only person in the region who's had the opportunity to present to every premier in in the four Atlantic provinces over the last 30 years. And so I've got to see each one of them a little bit up close. And um, of course, have, have, you know, have uh, certainly attracted opinion of uh, each of them as well. So, uh, you know, let's just do it province by province. You know, to me, it's, uh, it, 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 I, I would rank them based on on how consequential they have been in terms of making a difference to the province. So I would I would say that Stephen McNeil is probably the most consequential for Nova Scotia for sure, and 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 the consequences of his decisions aren't yet fully uh, materialized. You know the decision he made to uh, you know change the healthcare system in Cape Breton. Is still unfolding. I think that that's the way ahead for healthcare in Canada. That was brave. Took on the unions. You know, he did a lot of things that I think were transformational. And um, you know, so I would I would put him at the top for Nova Scotia uh, in New Brunswick. Without question, it's Frank McKenna, the ones that I knew. And and Frank did a couple of things that I think are really important. You know, he was uh, he he lockstepped with uh, Jerry Pond at NBTEL create a digital fiber-linked province that, you know, could attract uh, companies from outside. And, of course, it really set up the, the, you know, the growth of the call center industry, which is so important to the region to create so many jobs. But the other thing that he did uh, is that he put in place, you know, highways to connect communities, especially the triangle between St. John, Moncton, and, and, and St. John. That's really important commercially. And I give him a lot of credit for that. And then thirdly, the thing that he also did is he gave a sense of confidence to the people of New Brunswick that has never really wavered since he came to power. So that was really important. Uh, you know, in, in PEI, Joe Giz, he, he was really important for the Confederation Bridge, you know, and it was instrumental in getting that, you know, off and running, which, by the way, we did tracking on this. And when, when that was talked about, 80% of islanders didn't want it. <laughs> They thought it was the t- the worst idea ever, but you know he pr- pursued that, and and we could we were tracking it as it was being built, and it went from eighty twenty to, you know, forty sixty to forty 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 fifty fifty, and then it was it started reversed, and by the end it was eighty twenty in favor. And of course, that Confederation Bridge has transformed the island, and look what look what's going on in the island now. It's leading the region in terms of economic growth, population growth. Newfoundland's a little harder to judge. You know, I, I guess that, uh, I guess he would say that uh, Williams would be the, uh, the the one that would stand out, but he had some negatives that were consequential. The one thing that uh, he did, though, is that, you know, like most strong premiers in Newfoundland, he took on the feds. And the Newfoundlanders like premiers to take on the feds. It's us against them and then bring them all together. But, uh, you know, he... Uh, 
He did some things to help the oil industry for sure, uh, which is still so important uh, to the province. And, you know, Danny was um, aggressive, obviously. Um, he also helped the confidence of Newfoundlanders. I think I give him credit for that. The problem that Danny has and the legacy that he has is he left a structural deficit in government that has yet to be dealt with. He grew his, he almost doubled the size of government during his term. I like them. I, I still like him. I think he was, out, you know, uh, great. I just don't understand as a conservative how he let that happen. That, uh, that kind of surprised me, but those are the kind of the four that I would stand, I would say stand out for me personally, based on my own experience. So long before you retired, you took up this cause of a more prosperous Atlantic Canada. I remember seeing you speak. You you went around and you talked about the urban, uh, uh, the focus on urban centers around the region. So you've been doing this for a while. And of course, after you sort of retired, and of course, you didn't actually retire, you sold the business, but you've been doing lots of stuff since. But why did you do that? Why not focus back on healthcare or IWK or take on some more community boards? Why did you decide to take on this uh, Don Quixote uh, cause of trying to foster <laughs> a more prosperous Atlantic Canada? Well, David, uh, this started a long time ago, as you probably know. Uh, one of the things I noticed is that the business leaders were generally silent in the region. They didn't want to take on anything controversial and create problems with the, with the governments because they relied on governments for part of their business. Uh, you know, that's the nature of our economy down here. You know, uh, provincial governments are disproportionately important to the success of many, many businesses. So they tend to be, you know, reticent about sharing their opinions. I never felt that way. <laughs> but you had lots reason. of provincial business too. So you had oh, to kind yeah. of walk it, you know, so... No, no, I no, I there was risks I I I I took, but by the time I was taking them, I was so well established as a uh, nonpartisan. This is really important, and we decided early in the in the uh, game not to be a partisan polling firm. And and by the way, at that time, everybody was linked to a political party who had a polling firm, and they were getting provincial bit business when their party was in power. I didn't want to go in that, you know that cycle. So, you know, we grew our business from the private sector and then got into the public sector and established our rep reputation as being an arm's length kind of nonpartisan firm uh, that government started to appreciate better when they were doing serious work and they wanted the, they wanted the name of the company associated with the work because it gave that work credibility. Right. Yeah. And we also had enormous credibility with the media. And like, you know, I have a, a lot of friends in the media. They always said, by far, we were the most credible um, polling firm in the region. And they always waited for our numbers because those are the numbers they trust. So when you get to that point, it's kind of hard to shut you out of the business, you know, because, you know, you don't want to lose that credibility side. But I, I've certainly lost business as a result of speaking out from governments, for sure. But I thought it was too important to not uh, advocate for the kind of changes that I thought were necessary. As you know, one of the things I promoted really early on were the, the problem of demographics. Th this goes back almost 25 years where when I was looking at the data, it was evident that we we're going to be in the problem that we are today. It was completely evident. There's no, there no surprises for me. And I was always on this issue. I was always on the issue of, uh, you know, uh, why aren't we getting our share of immigrants? You know, 
uh, in trying to fight that battle. Uh, there were many things that I thought that were worthy of having a voice out there. And by the way, the thing that I had going with me is that I could support it with data almost all the time. And so it was, it was very hard for people to take me on, if you will, because they didn't have the facts that I had at my disposal. That's what made uh, my role uh, kind of more um, powerful, it's not the right word, but more influential, if you will, because I usually backed up the argument with information that was hard to refute. And, you know, I'll give you a, this is a silly example, but um, you know, we were having a discussion about Sunday shopping back in the day. And it looked like if you look, looked at the media and the commentary, it looked like, you know, 90% of people were against Sunday shopping. And I said to my guys, I said, let's go find out what the, what the public thinks about this. Maybe, you know, is that true? Turned out it wasn't true at all. And we released the data that showed it was the opposite. The majority of people wanted Sunday shopping. It completely turned the discussion around. All the people who were afraid to speak out in Sunday shopping because they thought they were the minority now began speaking out about it. And it turned out that, you know, with mostly two income families and, you know, having kids and activities, they didn't really have time to shop. And so it, the, the matter of convenience was so important to, you know, people uh, in, with families that, you know, that issue, by the way, when they put it into place, you know, didn't have any opposition, and it's, look, look at it now. Like it's it's not even a second thought anymore. So mm -hmm. that's the power of what I call the silent majority. One of the things I always thought that we did with our company was resent, uh, re represent the silent majority in some public debate because sometimes the government had the data, but often the public did not. And, and it informed their, their thinking and their, their, their decision-making when they knew um, – what the lay of the land was. So one of your key, and I would say fairly controversial themes has been this focus on you're a big believer in growing and supporting urban centers across yes. Atlantic Canada. Um, yeah. You know, this is a region that's 45% rural, Don, so that's a bit controversial, but I think your view is that the, these thriving urban hubs are actually good for rural Atlantic Canada. So tell us a little bit about that yeah. as your signature, one of your signature positions. Yeah, I took that on a while ago as well, because when I started to take a look at the data, I, you know, I started to think about uh, markets, first of all. So if you look at the market of Halifax, for instance, you know, there's 40% of people living in Halifax compared to the province. You add 100 kilometers around that, and it's like 60%, you know. And I, I started looking at what Halifax provided, that that sort of what I call the circle, uh, market circle. And, you know, what they did is they provided uh, jobs, a lot of people traveling in every day from Truro and Bridgewater and the, you know, the Valley every day to work. And they provided educational centers, they provided health, you know, centers, uh, entertainment, cultural centers, and, and, and people were able to live where they wanted to in more rural areas, but take advantage of the urban amenities and employment opportunities. So I thought, well, why don't we replicate that everywhere in the region? What would happen if we did that? You know, I was working with like, a, I started working with 50 kilometers and 75 kilometers and 100 kilometer radius to see what was captured within those communities. And so I started doing that for each of the provinces. And I realized that, you know, like in, in New Brunswick, five centers, you have 85% of the people living within 75 kilometers of those five centers. So instead of, uh, you know, 
getting people to move to urban areas from those rural areas. Why don't we create more opportunities in each of those areas? Why don't we concentrate our service delivery in those areas to allow people to continue to live in rural areas, but to be serviced by nearby urban areas? And if we did that, we wouldn't have to worry about people, you know, having to move. But it means a greater focus on economic development. It means a greater focus on delivery of services. And hospitals is a good example of that. You know, having five big centers for for healthcare with all the specialties, so you don't have to travel to Moncton or you don't have to travel to Halifax or Charlottetown, right? That would benefit everybody in the province, right? But you can only do that if you started to concentrate the delivery of services. And again, you know, if 85 or 90% of the people live within a half hour, you know, that's better than being in Toronto sometimes trying to get somewhere, right? And so having this discussion, I got a lot of pushback of people saying, oh, you're anti-rural. No, actually, I'm pro-rural. This is a a way of saving rural and making rural more sustainable. And that's what people didn't get. And, you know, whether the, you know, I talked to governments about that. I actually thought the the Higgs government was going to do it. They didn't. But, you know, I think it's going to happen automatically because if we can have those urban uh, centers be more successful and be more of a center uh, service center, we can we can protect people living in nearby uh, rural areas uh, and, and it will be better for everybody. And by the way, in Atlantic Canada, if you if you look at all those what I call urban areas, I'm talking about small towns of 5000 or more. So it's not a big threshold. You know, it's it, you know, those could also be considered rural townships for sure there are about 30 there are about 30 30 of those uh, serve 85 to 90 percent of the population think about it mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense so just got a couple more questions for you down here as we wrap up one of the interesting things about you that i think most people at least i didn't know is just how many of your close and extended family still live in nova scotia and in the halifax yeah. area i think you said somewhere around 60 can you tell us Close. a little bit about this situation and how it animates your thinking on the region and its future? Yeah, and you know this I give again credit to my family for instilling in our my brothers and sisters and I the sense of family. And uh you know amongst the seven siblings I think we are now up to I think the last count we had a couple of new babies this year. I think we were 58 in our family. And uh of the 58 um 56 live in the Halifax Dartmouth area. Just my brother and his wife live in Truro. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we make it a point in our family to get everybody together, that big group, at least twice a year. And, uh, you know, having, you know, we've had, we've had people in our family go away to work, including my two kids, by the way, and decide they want to come back and live and grow their fa- and, and raise their families here. That, that that sense of family is really, uh, in our family at least, is really, really a big driver and motivator. But I think that that's becoming more and more possible, that people no longer have to leave this region. I'm very grateful about that. There's lots of opportunity for young people. And, you know, this going down the road thing does not have to happen anymore, which everybody in this region should be very grateful for. Last question, Don. Besides co-hosting the Insights podcast, what are you up to these days? <laughs> Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I, I write a, a monthly column for the daily newspapers, which is, which is good discipline for me. I'm learning a lot through that process. 
Uh, I'm learning a lot through the podcast as well as you you and I have talked about. I've got some business interests. I've still got a business interest in Bermuda that I've it's going on 25 years. I you know I bought a business with my brother and my son and a couple of other people uh, three years ago, almost immediately after selling my other one. Uh, we're into some uh, acquisitions. Uh, we built a building together, bought a building in Moncton. Uh, you know what? I just want to say that I've never seen so much business opportunity right now. It's it's never been better. There's just so much going on, so many good things to invest in. It's just great, yeah. a great time uh, to be interested in business for sure. And I do, you know, I'm on a couple of uh, boards uh, just to round things out a bit. So one of my key messages over the years has been that retirement should change, right? That as we live older and older, we should be thinking about continuing to contribute well beyond the age of 65. So I think you're a really good example of that, Don. So Don Mills, thank you well, for joining just, us today on the Insights Podcast with Don Mills and David Campbell. Congratulations. Could, I just, I just want to sure. say one other thing on this because I think it's important. Like I never use the word retired, as you know. I don't like that word. Sure. I, I consider myself repurposed in life. And the, and the reason why I think that that's important is that I believe that you are healthier, both mentally and physically, if you remain engaged in things that stimulate you and uh, you know, keep your interests. And so, I would encourage anybody who are who's in the process of thinking about retirement to make sure that they think about what they want to do with the rest of their lives, because you still have a lot to contribute. Yeah, that's a really great point to end on, Don. Because I do think a lot of people, and you can see it in the data, a lot of people are still like formally retiring somewhere between sixty and sixty-five, and and leaving the workforce completely. And I think that's a big mistake. You can you can re- repurpose, as you say, like you don't necessarily have to work 40 hours a week, the same no. job. You can do part time, you can do seasonal, you can take on entrepreneurial ventures. There's lots of things you can do. But just this sort of hard retirement at 65, I think that's really got to stop. And I would say even with public sector employees, we've got to move away from that idea that you retire and you you sort of, you know, go play shuffleboard and, and golf all day. <laughs> Exactly right. Anyway, on, on that note, Don, congratulations on your induction into the Nova Scotia Business Hall of Fame. We look forward to many, many more exciting insights podcasts, and I've really enjoyed our collaboration over the last year and a half. Yeah, me too, David. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.